0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 7, if you will. i will be our text this morning, uh, and then I'm, I'm going to pray for us uh, briefly, so let's, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for this truth that the angels heralded so long ago, that you sent your son into this world, um, that, that he didn't do it begrudgingly either, but that, that he was pleased to dwell among us, to dwell among your people. That is a priceless gift that I don't think any of us rightly estimate the value of. So we pray that that this morning we would meditate on that, that truth specifically, we would think about the incredible gift that we have in Christ. Uh, We ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, A few weeks ago, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and so this feels like sort of a bookend, Uh, Though it wasn't really intentionally planned out that way uh, at the start. Uh, But we've been in a series on the offices of Christ. And the the offices refers to uh, his role as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, We find these three offices especially important in the Old Testament. Uh, The Lord raises up prophets. He raises up priests. He raises up kings even. Uh, to minister to and care for his people. And Christ then is the fulfillment of those three things in the life of God's people today. And he, he still is our prophet, our priest, and our king, uh, and, and a better one than, than any others that have gone before him. When we talked about prophets a couple of weeks ago, Tyler preached an excellent sermon on that. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, check it out on our website. Um, Tyler mentioned that that the prophet is, is a herald. He is bringing God's word to the people. He tells them of the law. He tells them of God's expectations. And he also reminds them and warns them of pending judgment for those who are opposed to the God of Israel. And that would be uh, maybe a bit terrifying if that's where it stopped, but... But thank goodness Jesus is not just our prophet, he is also our priest. And as Tyler mentioned last week, Jesus, he atones for our sin. He makes us right with God. Now, The priests of the Old Testament would make sacrifices annually, regularly, because there was always more sin that needed to be atoned for. But Christ, he offers one sacrifice once for all time, for all of his people. And it's no donkey, it's no sheep, it's no bull that he offers, it is he himself that he gives to us on our behalf, uh, that, that God's wrath towards sin would be done with, and that we might find friendship with God instead of being his enemies. And so then this week, we conclude our series with a look at how Jesus is our king. We need him to be our king. We need him to lead us, to shepherd us, to guide us in the holiness that he has purchased with his own blood. We need him to direct our thoughts and our attention, our steps towards our God. That's, that's what we need. Jesus 4. Now, when you think about these three offices, probably prophet and priest are somewhat familiar, but, but I imagine in your mind you, you can think of kings a bit more easily. If I were to ask you to name off a prophet or a priest from the Old Testament, you might, you might fumble through a couple names. But when you think of kings of the Old Testament, you can certainly come up with at least one. Right? The, the most well-known character, arguably in the whole Bible, uh, besides Jesus, right? Uh, and these aren't characters you understand, David, King David. Uh, every king in Israel is judged based on how well they measure up to David's standard. right? We, we think of kings and maybe they're more familiar to us, but it's a little confusing then when we think of the importance of kings in the Bible and we realize that much of the Old Testament, Israel is without a king. Israel has no king. We may think that this is sort of a, a, a plan B in God's mind of how he would lead his people. Eventually, he just kind of concluded that, that installing a king would be helpful, but that's, that's not the case. It, it extends all the way back even to Genesis. I'm not going to turn there, but Genesis 49, verse 10, uh, Jacob, Israel, uh, pronounces blessing on his 12 sons who would become the 12 fathers of the tribes of Israel, and one of his sons, Judah... He, he declares a blessing saying that from his line, from Judah's own line, would come kings. It's always been a part of God's plan that his people would have royalty among them. And, and it doesn't stop there. It continues along. There are no kings for a little while, but then we get to Judges. And the constant refrain of this book in the Old Testament is that there was no king in Israel. And the consequence of this is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the people of Israel are constantly spiraling out of control into chaos because they have no leader, they have no king who will show them the ways of the Lord. We get to Samuel, First Samuel in particular, and the Israelites, they've got, uh, they've got it in their minds that what they need most of all is a king. But they, they come to this conclusion based on looking at all the nations around them. They see all the nations that um, are in the promised land and neighboring areas, and they know these nations have kings. We need to be just like them. And so they, they, they really insist on it. And if you turn to First Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel's not a king. He's a judge. And so what they're saying essentially is, Samuel, we're done with you. We want to move on to a better golden age of monarchy. Give us a king. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Israel clamors for a king, and the Lord acquiesces. He he gives them one. But what he tells Samuel is that this king, and what Samuel eventually tells them, is that this king, any king virtually, that they, that they would have for themselves will, will eventually disappoint them, will eventually fail them, will eventually take all this power to his head, right? And instead of caring for his people, will do things that the people find destructive in their midst. We see Saul eventually rejected for this very thing, the first king of Israel. The problem with Israel is not, though, that they want a king. Oftentimes it's confused for that way, that, that people think, well, Israel wanted a king, and that was their problem. But it's not that, right? The Lord says it right here. The problem is not that they want a king. The problem is that they have rejected me, the Lord, as their king. So the, the Lord has plans for a, a kingdom in Israel, a, a monarchy, a ruler in Israel, but, but his standards are perhaps different than the standards of Israel. What is a king? What does a king do? A king in the Old Testament especially is a representative, a shepherd, a model. Right? A, a, a king is a defender. He's also a judge. Right? He, he brings justice to bear within God's people, but also within and among the nations. God's king is, is in a lot of ways his representative on earth. And that's, that's the context then for 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were in chapter 6. David was excited to bring the ark into Jerusalem, into the, the, the royal city. Uh, and now we, we kind of pick up right on the next page, and we see David come up with a great idea. Remember, the ark has been out and about. It uh, has most recently been uh, in the hands of the Philistines and then in in the home of a man not anywhere near Jerusalem, but David has decided to bring the ark into town, and he comes up with an idea. So let's let's turn to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. We'll read the first three verses here. When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, David notices a, a disparity here, a, a discrepancy. David is dwelling in a beautiful, luxurious home. And the ark of God is still in a tent. God is still living in a, the, 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 the building that's meant to be mobile. That's meant to constantly be moving. But now we're in one place. We have settled in the land. The Lord deserves a house of his own. This is what's going through David's mind. And Nathan, the prophet, says, you know what, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. I imagine God will be pleased with that. Go right on ahead, draft some plans. Nathan's, Nathan's not quite fully understanding what's at stake here, though. And as we'll see, Nathan, Nathan is wrong about the Lord's desires. This is a bit like... Um, uh, this just comes to mind. So we've got all this construction going on in the foyer. Jamie Herndon's crew has been tearing up and setting, that, setting up and doing all these things, right? It'd be a bit like Jamie's son, who is not old enough to build a house, uh, coming to him and saying, hey, Dad, you know what? I see what you're doing. I, let me build you a house. It'd be sweet. It'd be cute. I'm sure he'd use Legos or Duplos or blocks or something like that, and it would be awesome. Jamie would be proud. He'd take a picture of it. Claire would probably post it on Facebook. One way or the other, you'd see it. But none of us would ever think that this was a serious, serious offer, right? We think it's, we think it's sweet. We think it's kind. It's cute. But, it, but Jamie is the one who, who does the building, right? Jamie's the one who builds houses, who, who tears down churches and builds them up again. Jamie's the one who does those things. David similarly comes before the Lord making this offer. Let me build you a house. Let me, let me give you a place not unlike my own palace, Let's see what the Lord says. In verse 4, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built, built me a house of cedar? In other words, the Lord very directly rejects David's idea. He says, hey, man, uh, that's, that's sweet of you. I've never asked for that. I have no need for that. I've, I've never approached. Israel's been a thing for far longer than you've been a king, and I've never mentioned any, any need for a, a building of my own. Right? He he kindly, directly rejects David's idea and changes the subject. If we pick up in verse eight, he says, "'Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, "'I took you from the pasture, "'from following the sheep that you should be prince "'over my people Israel. "'I have been with you wherever you went "'and have cut off all your enemies from before you. "'I will make for you a great name "'like the name of the great ones of the earth, "'and I will appoint a place for my people Israel.' And will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord, He, His his response to David raises, um, well, raises a few helpful points. What, what makes a king a, a good king? What makes a king a successful king in the eyes of Israel, in the eyes of the Lord? What, what's his mission? What's his aim? What's he trying to accomplish by having a king like David in charge? There are, there are, there are well, there are a lot of different things, but right here we, we see a couple of really important things that David does through the Lord. Through King David, God secures a place for his people. He, he, he secures it, he, he establishes it, this is your territory, these are your walls, these are your buildings, this is your place, where, where the Lord's people, my people, can gather and worship me in safety. So David establishes a, a place for them, but through King David, God also protects his people from their enemies. You see these things referenced here in this, these last few verses, right? I've given you a place, I've set aside a place, and and I have vanquished all your enemies, or I will vanquish your enemies. Wipe them out. Protect you on all sides. This is what the Lord aims to accomplish through King David. Ultimately, David, though, depends on God's provision. I mean, it's just right there. I'll do this, the Lord says. I have done this. I will do this. Now, the Lord uses David and David is certainly an important figure because he's so obedient to the Lord for most of his life. But the point is that the Lord is the one who provides these things, and he uses David to accomplish it. And so this, this brings us to our first point. A good king, like, like David, depends on God's provision to secure a place for God's people and protect them from their enemies. This is what makes David such a great king. It's it's not necessarily that David is strong and mighty. When he's found, he's kind of scrawny. He's the shortest of all of his brothers. He he goes out to fight against Goliath and Saul. This the current king is a he's a big man. He gives David his armor, thinking this will be a protection for him. But David can't even move in it because it's it's so gaudy and unwieldy on David's small, scrawny shepherd boy body. Right? David's not he's not impressive. The Lord must be the one to provide these things. The Lord must be the one to protect his people. The Lord must be the one to give them a space in which they can live freely and securely. And he uses David to do this. But here's our second point. You like that? One point. Now we're on to point number two. Here we are. Second point is this. Unless God intervenes, even the best kingly line will eventually dissolve. Unless the Lord does something, even the greatest dynasty, like, like that of David, will eventually fall apart. It cannot sustain itself. David, from beginning to end, depends on the Lord's provision for any of this to work well. Let's, let's pick back up in, in verse 11 there. The Lord says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, this is important, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. See, God rejected David's offer to build him a house. But then the Lord turns it around. And he says, you know what? Instead, let me build you something. Let me build you a house. And that, that language is maybe a little bit archaic to us. We don't think about building houses the way that this passage is actually referring to. The Lord's not specifically saying, I want to build you a building that'll be awesome and magnificent and all your enemies will come cringing to. He's saying, I'm going to build up your household, your family, your dynasty. Let me build up your lineage, build up your descendants, Let me create something great here in your midst from your own people. And so through David, God promises a throne over his people. Let's keep going. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Excuse me, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Through David, God protects his people, he provides a place for them, but he also promises an eternal throne over them, among them. God is is making an unusual promise here. He doesn't promise this to just any king. In fact, David is the only one who receives this, this promise, and, and, and what happens here is that God determines to preserve David's house, his lineage, forever. Why? Is it because David is so great that his DNA has to be preserved and carried on from generation to generation? Is that it? Is it, is it because David is too good of a specimen of a king to let this line die out? No. No. Quite quite the opposite. It's because David's line, his family tree, has no hope unless God covenants with him. See, unless the Lord makes a promise, unless the Lord swears to do something for David, there, there is no way David can ensure the outcome. Certainly not something like this. Alright, because David can maybe be as good as he can be in and of himself, but he has no control over his son or his grandson or his great-grandson, his great-great-grandson. It goes on and on and on and on and on for generations. He has no authority over their lives. And if the history of Israel, if you read Samuel, if you read Kings, if you read Chronicles, if those books show us anything, it is that there is no way in this world you can put any hope in the sons of men to rule God's people faithfully. Unless the Lord swears to to just be there with them through it all. He says, my steadfast love will never depart, right? See, all of this, uh, the kingly line of David, all of it is for naught if it rises and falls with David or his descendants. David, as we find out, is an, uh, he becomes an adulterer, a murderer, and he's the best of the bunch. From that point on, all the sons of David, more or less, are idolaters, starting with Solomon, the very next in line. And then the kingdom splits up because it's such a mess. And you end up with these two kingdoms, two kingly lines. One, the descendants of David. The other, a ragtag group of guys who are constantly warring with each other and and usurping the throne. And while there are a few bright spots in David's line, there are a few moments where the kings get something right, like start reading the Bible again, uh, stuff like that. There's never any hope that any of them will ever be as great or as mighty as King David was. It, 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 all, it all falls apart. But that's where this language of God's covenant with David becomes so interesting. You know, the Lord, he, he refers to David's son as my son. He says, I'll be to him a father. He'll be my son. Now, calling a king, calling a prince the son of God is uh, it's not unusual in ancient literature. It's not unusual in the Bible. Psalm 2, we started out our time together this morning reading from Psalm 2. And, and in that psalm, yeah, there are certainly some messianic, prophetic overtones going on there. But the psalm, if you, if you were listening, it says a couple of times, you know, this, is, this is my son, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. And the psalm is referring to the king. The psalm would have been read around to about David or Solomon or any of the other guys. It's not uncommon for people to think of the king, especially the king of Israel, as God's son. But this is where the story picks up, right? This this son of David will build God a house, but God will secure his throne. And, and this is really important, the Lord says, even though he, he has iniquity to his account. I, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. See, all, all these kings, they, they end up failing to uphold the standard of holiness that you would, that you would associate with someone who is the, the son of God, right? It doesn't make any sense how this can be. Turn with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 19. This is a a poetic sort of retelling of this, this covenant. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him and my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep For him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with the rod, their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love, or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. As you, as you hear those words, I want you to just put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite living post-David. And that's when this would have been written and read again and again and again. As God's kings lead his people into idolatry and sin, as one half of the kingdom is, is exiled, taken away, kidnapped by another nation, and then the other half of God's people taken away years later. I mean, imagine being an Israelite in a foreign land, reading that psalm and wondering where it was that the promise of the Lord to maintain David's line fell apart. Where did it come undone? What happened? The, the pain of of. The dashed hopes of God's people mixed with this long-awaited but yet unfulfilled, seemingly unfulfilled promise to preserve David's line, was surely unbearable. Do you do you feel that? And and then at, at just the right time, God sent his son. Luke chapter 1 turn there with me starting in verse 31 Behold this is an angel speaking to Mary you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne Of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. See, in Christ, God's faithfulness to David, it culminates in the perfect king. Who is no ordinary. This is this is God with us. That is one of his names. Emmanuel. And, and here is the announcement, the, the angel heralds this good news. You see it, all, all this language is so familiar. If you've been paying any attention to, to Samuel so far, he refers to him as the son of David in verse 32. Jesus is known as the son of the most high, the son of God also in Verse 32. And I mentioned earlier that in in Psalm two we see the language of Son of God being oftentimes referring to an earthly king. But but what makes it so fascinating is that God really wasn't kidding when He said that. He really sent forth His Son to be the heir to David's throne. It was no joke. It wasn't hyperbole. It wasn't wishful thinking. Now, the Lord sent forth his son, and and he refers to this kingdom that he will establish for him as an unending one. It never ends. This is an astonishing fulfillment of David's initial request, his initial idea, right? David says, Lord, let me build you a house where you can dwell. Let me make a space suitable for your ark, suitable for your glory. Come and dwell among us. And the Lord says, no, 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 that's not what we're gonna do. I'm gonna build you a house. But the incredible thing is that by building David a house, the Lord actually then at the same time fulfilled his own promise and and, and nestled his son right in the middle of David's family tree. Right in the middle of David's house, he puts Jesus. It's incredible. In the end, David's idea wasn't a bad one. He just had no idea how in the world that thing would need to come about. A building would have been nice. Eventually, Solomon does that. But the Lord has a much bigger plan in mind. He sends his own son to take over David's house, to take over David's dynasty, and in the end, lead and shepherd his people. God protects his people, and God secures a place for his people then through Christ, our king. These are, the, the, these are important things that the Lord describes about David. But Jesus, he does the same things. It's through Jesus, through King Jesus, that our enemies, sin, death, and hell, are vanquished. You know, David, David's thinking about Philistines, he's thinking about Edomites, he's thinking about all these random little tribes and peoples that are stronger and mightier than the Israelites, but they, they don't compare at all to the enemy of God's people who who is sin, death, and hell. And those are the enemies that we face, right? And Jesus, as our king, he steps into time, he steps into history, and he He defends us from our sworn enemies. He protects all those who are in him from those things. He rescues us, he redeems us. Through King Jesus, our citizenship in God's kingdom is also secured. David's role was to to maintain and preserve a space for God's people to dwell in. Jesus has done that to the infinite degree. Israel was was looking for a parcel of land out in, in the Middle East. But the kingdom of God is it it surpasses the the universe. And if, if you are in Christ, if Christ is your king, then, then that kingdom is, is where you reside. And living in, in this world, living in the United States, is really only a temporary thing until you fully, finally move into the kingdom of our God and King, Jesus. Right? He, he has purchased for us a place. He says, I will go to prepare a place for you at his ascension, Right? King Jesus, he he is he does all that was expected of David, but he does it to to an even greater degree that none of us can can imagine. So turn to Revelation twenty one. This is how John wraps up his book. It's how he wraps up the Bible, and it's it's so fitting that it would conclude this way, given all that we've seen so far. He says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, right, a new place. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man." He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, the fall is is undone in the new heavens and the new earth. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. Jesus' reign, his kingdom, his kingship is the greatest possible news. It is the greatest news. All of it, all of it, the fall, everything that's happened since, all of it unravels because of him. All of it unravels because of his work to redeem a people for himself, to set aside, to call out citizens of his new coming kingdom. See that all the enemies that we face, he even mentions death itself, they are vanquished. They're destroyed fully and finally. Now, this, this should be an encouragement for us as God's people in this, in this life, in this world, in this kingdom however temporary it may be. You know what this means? This means that any fear that you have about the, 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 the state of God's church, the, 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 the strength of it, its ability to withstand Satan himself, any fear that you have should dissolve in light of King Jesus. And the, the surety of his work to fulfill and to perfect and to bring to completion all that he set out to do by ransoming a people for himself. You know, the, the angst that we so often are prone to feel every election season, virtually anytime we look at the news, that everything is falling apart. That, that is, is so pitifully small in comparison to, to the surety of Christ's kingdom. this This is an eternal kingdom, a throne that is established forever. There is no one who can thwart his plans. There is no one who can get in his way. There is no army. There is no leader. There is no person that you know, whether they are famous or important or not, who can at all take the spotlight from King Jesus. It can't happen. So what's drawing your allegiance away from this king? What, who, whose opinion, what, what circumstance, what, what's keeping you from, from reveling in the glory of our God and King? What's going on in your life that, that you have elevated to a place where not even King Jesus is sovereign over it? What's happening? Is there anything too big for him? Is, is there, there were plenty of things that were too big for David. Uh, there, there, there's not one thing that, that King Jesus cannot shepherd you through. Uh, there, there's, there's not one area of this whole universe over which Jesus does not say justly and rightly, mine. Because he's the king. Finally, finally, Maybe if you are not a believer, you you maybe you're, you're here and and, uh, and you find this whole idea of King Jesus to be kind of kind of quaint, um, it, it, the product of sort of a like this is this would be more fitting maybe for the Dark Ages you know medieval times kings and vassals and lords and all that uh, but this is modern day America I don't know how much this really rings true for me kings really is that is that it. Uh, Now, you've got a king. You've got a king. We all have kings. There there is something, there is someone, maybe it's you yourself, that that you are depending on to deliver you from sin, death, and hell. All of us, we all have a king. Who's yours? even, Even the best rulers are pitiful substitutes and the best things that we can come up with to guide our lives to make sense of this world even the best of them they're, they're pathetic compared to jesus do you need do you have a, a, a cruel tyrant and taskmaster is that is that your king is that how you can describe your king if you feel downtrodden, beaten down, beaten up, harried along the way all the time, I can tell you that your king, whatever it is that's ruling your life, is definitely a taskmaster. But there's, a, there's, a, there's a better king for you. Is your king benevolent? Is he kind? Is he just? Is he merciful? That's the king that you need. And the great news is that that king is reigning. Even now. And for all who trust in him, who who trust in him, for all of them, he reigns and rules with mercy, with justice. You need that. You need that. Do you need a place? Do you need a defender, a protector. You need a king like Jesus. We need Jesus as our king. I'm going to conclude by reading from Isaiah chapter 9. When I'm done, I'll pray. The band will lead us in worshiping Jesus together. Hear these words from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a son is born, and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you acknowledging your, your greatness, your might. You, you are otherworldly. There's nothing that, that we have, nothing that we know that compares to you. And like the Israelites, so often we seek kings that, that meet our expectations, that meet our criteria, because our vision is so limited, our, our expectations and our hopes so low, that we will settle for just about anyone, anything, to lead us. Oh, but you, you did something unbelievable in, in history, in time, in a real place. You spoke to your servant David and you swore to him that you would build a kingdom from his line, one that would last forever. And though all of David's sons failed, and though all of David's sons received your rod for their iniquity, you were steadfast. You never wavered. And at just the right time, you you brought forth your son, born in a way none of us could have expected. A king being born in a, a cattle stall. But you sent forth your son, perfect, holy, Righteous and just and true. And he he is the king that you had promised long ago. In a way that we could never have imagined. You stepped in and you dwelled in David's house. You yourself. God with us. Lord, have have we lost sight of that? How content we are the rulers of this world that drag us down and beat us up and, and remind us that we are, we are your enemies. Oh, but in, in Christ, your, your Jesus, your, your son, our king, he, he rules and reigns over us with compassion and mercy. He himself stands in our place before you and defends us from sin, death, and hell. Help us to believe. Help us to trust in him. For those of us in this room who who are believers, I pray that you would would draw our attention away from the the things of this life that we we think are are insurmountable or that we ourselves have to defend ourselves from. Could could you show us to put all of our hope in Jesus, to to watch as he defends us from these things As as he clears a space for us to dwell with you? And for those in this room who, who have not declared their allegiance to this king, or would you challenge them right now? Would you cause them to see the foolishness of a life lived serving anyone else, even themselves? I pray that, that you would cause us all to worship our God and king together with joy knowing that, that he is our shepherd. There is nothing we need. He has met all of our needs. Be with us now as we worship them. And give us joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.